Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we welcome back to the podcast Andre Markovitz, who holds the Carl Deutsch Chair in Comparative Politics and German Studies at the University of Michigan. We visited with Andy last year about his book, Gaming the World, on sports and globalization. For this episode, we are talking to Andy and his co-author, Emily Albertson, about their new book, Sportista, Female Fandom in the United States, published by Temple University Press in 2012. We'll start this episode with a quiz. If you are listening to the podcast in Australia, or India, or England, Answer this question. Who are the three active cricketers who have a test batting average higher than that of Sachin Tendulkar? For those who are listening in Europe, here is your question. Only eight men have won the Ballon d'Or multiple times. Who are they? And the challenge to fans of American sports is this. How many players can you name from the lineup of the 1961 New York Yankees. If you're a male fan, these questions will probably inspire concerted thought, and you won't rest until you've Googled the answers. But if you're one of the podcast's female listeners, you might be wondering, who cares what the Yankees' starting lineup was 50 years ago? Here is the difference between the ways that men and women think and talk about sports. And this is one of the main themes of Andy and Emily's book, Sportista. Even for women who follow sports constantly and carefully, such as Emily, the topics of men's sports conversations are tedious and, frankly, pointless. Unfortunately, male fans see their way of talking about sports as the only way to talk about sports. They regard women who don't participate in their trivia quizzes or endless discussions of last weekend's games as being unknowledgeable, and thus they exclude women from the ranks of true fans. In our interview, we talk about Andy and Emily's findings based on interviews with dozens of female fans and sports journalists. Their work is fascinating, And no matter whether you are a male or female fan, you'll find much that is thought-provoking in their book and hopefully in our interview. My guest on New Books in Sports is Andy Markovitz. Andy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Bruce. And we also have along uh, Andy's co-author of Sportista, Emily Albertson. Emily, welcome to New Books in Sports. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So, Andy, we had you on on the podcast last year, and we heard about your background and how you connected your your love of sports, developed first in Europe and then in the States, with your academic interests in in politics and political culture. So, Emily, I'll turn to you at the start and uh, ask you to give something of of your background as a participant in sports and as a sports fan. Sure. So, I like to start my story by explaining that uh, I grew up, my cousins were my were my buddies growing up, and of the 12 of us, I'm the only girl, so wow. that's, that's where it all started for me. Um, I have two brothers, all those cousins, a bunch of neighbors who we always hung out with, and they were always boys. So I think that that is kind of key to how I ended up um, as a sports fan. In terms of playing sports, I did, I was very active all throughout, you know, throughout high school, um, but... As we explained in the book, I think an important point is 
uh, to remember that playing is very different than following sports. Um, and I think most important for Sportista, for the book and for the idea of the Sportista, was my history as being the only girl in a crowd of boys where, you know, the games and the talks and the, it was all going to be up to the boys. So it was a matter in, in your case, in your family, that either you you learn to talk sports and to like sports or you would be completely excluded. Yeah, I mean, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't feel that way. It just, it was all I kind of knew because mm-hmm. that's what I was surrounded by. It didn't feel as though I was making a choice to, you know, go along with them versus do my own thing. It was just kind of the only thing to do. So you write at the start of the book that, that a purpose of the book was to explain a sportista like like yourself like Emily and uh, so what did you find in your in your research how common are sportistas here in the in the US not that common and this is I think also a key to explaining that our argument is not that women are the same as men and females watch sports in the same way and um, our, our, what we found in terms of the sportista is that she's very rare it's very rare to find a female that truly loves and knows about the game. Um, and those are two two important components of fandom is loving the game, having affect for the game and for the players and for your team versus having knowledge about them. So we found, I mean, and this wasn't all that surprising, that a real sportista is not, is not easy to find. And Andy, you, you uh, brought in research from your own classes that you teach on sports and society at Michigan, which, which backed this up. Yes, um, and actually it even precedes Michigan. It starts really in Germany, and then it uh, goes on to Harvard, and then it continues in Michigan. Uh, I mean, most of the, uh, the, the sportistas, are, um, the amateur sportistas, as it were, since we discussed journalists as well, who are also sportistas, uh, are uh, from Michigan, and including uh, one of them being Emily. And uh, Emily uh, took my class, and she uh, was identified as such, um, which I can, if you're interested, explain how I select these people. Yeah, and, yeah, I will. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I come into the class, and it's a large class. Actually, this year I just found out next uh, this winter semester it'll be almost. Uh, well over 250, and the class has ballooned. But um, I come in, and then I ask um, at the end end of the first lecture uh, that I'd like to meet uh, uh, young uh, female students with the following qualifications, namely uh, having watched watching Sports Center five days a week, and then watching one or the other or both of something called PTI or Around the Horn or some kind of sports related talk show three times a week, and typically about four or five or so uh, come forth out of a group of, you know, oh, well, 80, 90. Um, interestingly, by the way, the class, when I started teaching it the first time in 2000, uh, was overwhelmingly male. Now it's really 50-50. And um, then I ask uh, these uh, women to actually write me a long email about uh, first how they got to be this and that basically their history and socialization, and which Emily already explained to you, and uh, in her case, and she was one of these, and by the way, wrote um, brilliantly and eloquently, and she also happened to be a wonderful student, and, <laughs> and uh, so that then led to my asking her to do some research for me on this topic, which I actually had lots of material for, but it was unclear where this would lead. And then um, Emily reveals to me that about four months into this, uh, the, the project, I suddenly used the infamous or uh, dreaded B word, namely book. I said, we have a book here. And it became a book. And so, um, uh, yes, the, 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 the point is that um, we are really, sportistas are outliers, and uh, on, on a number of scales. They're outliers, first of all, um, in the highly male world of sports fandom, or you know, above all sports fandom. Um, and also, they are actually outliers in the women world of sports fandom, which we, as we describe the, the, in a chapter, the typical female fan, although also growing and having um, you know, been, become much more prominent than even 20, 30 years ago, uh, is still very different from 
uh, her male counterpart and also from the sportista, meaning that it's basically event-driven, it's, you know, big for the Super Bowl or the World Series, that it's very team-oriented. I mean, I'm sure that many, many Detroit women were following the, the Tigers uh, in, in, in October, Ditto uh, in San Francisco, uh, but that, in fact, is qualitatively different from following the Tigers the year-round or knowing about the Tigers in uh, uh, the, the Tigers team of 84, let alone uh, 45, both of which they won World Series in, or their battles against, against uh, Bob Gibson in the 68 series. But that, in fact, is still a uh, predominantly male preserve. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we'll get to all of these points in terms of what, what sportistas are and what distinguish them from other male and, and female fans. But I want to start with, uh, in, in the first chapter of the book, you, you describe a trip that both of you took to a school playground in, in Ann Arbor where you live and uh, what you observed in terms of how young boys and girls play. And, and this is really the starting point for your book in looking at, at boys' and girls' attitudes towards sports. So uh, what did you discover at that playground, and how does that relate to, to men and women in sports? We explained in the book how it stood out to us, the, the complete uh, gender segregation, which is, which is normal, but, but more specifically, um, the differences in the types of activities that the boys were doing versus the girls. The boys were in large groups, playing organized sports for the most part you know all you know 10 guys on each side of the basketball court they're playing a game of basketball they all know the rules the rules are the same for anybody that shows up it's a it's a team game and it's all the boys playing together versus the girls it was usually groups of two or three girls walking around maybe five girls and there was no there was there were no rules there was no real rhyme or reason to the activity it was much more about, you know, a lot of the girls were sitting in small groups just talking, on the swings just talking, on the top of the monkey bars just sitting and talking and maybe playing some sort of game amongst themselves, but not a game that anybody outside of that group before would recognize. They wouldn't know the rules to. So that was, I mean, that definitely stood out, is that the boys were playing team sports, team sports where the rules are the same every day. Um, everybody knows them, everybody follows them, and everybody's on a team. There's a winner and there's a loser at the end of recess. Andy, do you want to talk about how that... Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's quite clear that um, very early on, uh, uh, boys sort of enter this language. And uh, this also is, for example, borne out by research that that we're citing from these uh, sociologists at the University of Göttingen, where equivalent, uh, maybe actually even younger kids. These are, I guess, at the school that we observe would be how old, Emily, around 10 or so? Sure, or, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, but, um, but even younger, um, in this research, it's quite clear that in Germany, uh, the researchers, um, you know, the boys at age th- four, five or so are already know some of the players of Bayern Munich, or in this case, obviously, German soccer players. And the girls don't, and also don't care. And in fact, what was also fascinating, again, this sort of um, tracking starts early, is that the boys in this case were um, kind of uh, secluded or even suspicious of female researchers when they asked them these questions. Mm -hmm. But when male researchers asked them these questions, they found a kind of a kindred spirit. So they started talking about you know, I don't know, Mesut uh, Özil or someone, or whom, or your number ten, or something like this. So the point is that clearly, in both cultures, male kids get sucked into in into a, a a sport code, which, as Emily rightly points out, is sort of a universalistic code. They, you know, that basketball has these rules, and this is the game of basketball, and that's what they're actually replicating and playing, and the girls aren't. Yeah, in reading this chapter, I was I was nodding along at your observations. Uh, I have a uh, my my youngest, uh, who's seven. She plays on her school playground, and I've been there as the sometime as the volunteer monitor. And uh, the the one thing I noticed, or actually, my daughter said this uh, the other day. She said, "Why is it that boys, when they're playing, they always have to be the greatest?" 
You know, Emily, you were yeah, talking about watch. girls. Girls are together on the swing and they're talking. Well, the boys are talking too when they're playing soccer or basketball. And it's about, you know, you cheated, you stink, I'm the greatest, or or adopting the persona of of some famous athlete. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, 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 I mean, it would be interesting to see whether in, um, you know, whether ten years hence, uh, girls might uh, want to become Abby Wambach or. Mm-hmm. Or Maya Moore, or uh, but uh, I, I just uh, I think that it, it just it hasn't yet, or or um, clearly later they do, but uh, on some level those the girls that then are in, on to, into organized soccer. But you see the point; it's not this is not organized. This is sort of in that sense this um, thing at the uh, uh, Burns Park uh, School is. Uh, and the recess, that's why we thought it's such a great example, is that um, it's not that the girls are then picked up and driven uh, to organize soccer, where, in fact, Mia Hamm or Alex Morgan or whoever the, 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 the current uh, sort of the female star is, I'm sure has an important kind of uh, lead function in which whom they want to emulate. Um, no question, but uh, it's it, on, at the at the recess level. There's actually a, more of a spontaneous. I mean, what do sort of what do they do during recess? They just you know want to become mm-hmm. you know Kobe Bryant or whoever, uh, and, and and this is less the case with girls. Mm-hmm. I would not you know I imagine that just as many girls in that recess group are actually involved in organized sports after school. Or whatever, but it's it's just different when it comes to free time for the girls. I think, you know, you play soccer at soccer practice and at your soccer games, but there's less of that being organized between the girls or in, you know, including the girls at something like recess where the teams are different every day. But that's just for the boys. That's what you do. That is an activity for the girls. It might be their sport, but it's somewhat separated from you know their recreational activities. It's kind of standalone. Yeah, and that's what I see in my house with my boys and my girls is that. Uh... Uh, they all play sports, but it's only the boys who will be out in the yard w- sure. whenever there's a spare moment, kicking a ball mm-hmm. or throwing a ball. Yeah. Uh, a kid- and I, if I could just uh, you know add one more thing, I assume I, mean, I don't know your kids, but I assume <laughs> that to the boys, uh, the it doesn't end on the playing field. They're collecting things or they're uh, discussing it, and they are are. It's a more kind of as Emily said with the. Uh, um, you know the the uh, the girls being organized. It, it's really more integral to their entire their, existence, their identity, <laughs> to their life. Whereas uh, for girls, it's kind of a bounded thing. And that we also found, by the way, with the uh, certainly the normal female sports, but maybe even the sportista. That in fact there is this. Um, you know, you're totally into your team. You love your team. You follow your team. You are. Uh, want the team to win you're depressed when it loses but it's sort of a it's a it's it's confined and then it you know once it's over you're sad you're sad or delighted but you do not do the you know you don't follow the nfl draft or you don't um uh follow the the the, the whole world between games which is i think so not i think well, i know uh, so integral to the male counterpart mm-hmm. That is, you know, my wife often, and I think rightly, uh, uh, observes that uh, to, she thinks that to me the pre and the post game discussion, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, research, blog, whatever, is maybe more important than the game itself. And I think she's not wrong. Yeah, and follow up on that, a key point you make in that early chapter about boys and girls play and how it relates to to sports fandom is that you say as boys get older and many of them discover that they're not good at sports they continue to follow sports whereas when girls find out that they're not good at sports they typically lose interest altogether absolutely uh, and in, which means of course that that basically the following of sports for boys really is it's not a physical activity anymore it becomes kind of a i don't know a, a, a but that's why we got a little dabbled a little bit in the sociology of nerddom. Mm-hmm. In other words, that you it really becomes a mental uh, um, collector's item, or it's, it's a form of yeah. It's, it's it's actually really not a it's really an issue of knowledge, or it's a knowledge field rather than which of course is very important because it then obviously becomes 
a kind of distinction and status and I know more than you and all this, but uh, it is, um, it really is devoid of, in fact, I would say it's almost exclusive. Uh, one could almost say that the, 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 the real sports nuts, the male sports, are, are in fact, and as we, sh- we uh, in my, my research that I were using in the book that I did on Michigan athletes and students, that the real sports nuts who knew, you know, the Celtics of the 60s and the Yankees of the 50s and added extra sheets, they were not the athletes. In other words, it's in fact kind of these, you know, nerds for better for lack of a better word, who are not athletes, who are who are not athletes, or who are completely average athletes, to whom this becomes then a form of of their identity. So something interesting in in the book was that you did surveys of female athletes at the university of level, so both at at or at the University of Michigan as well as at other schools, and you found that in general these top female athletes are not sports fans. Yes, they're completely devoted to their, um, I think one of the best, our best sources was a uh, University of Michigan, um, after all, still a Division One soccer school, and she had a soccer scholarship, and she kept uh, a diary and of their lives, of the soccer team's lives. And it's very clear that they are uh, totally devoted to studying film, to uh, analyzing their opponent to, you know, to being top athletes, but that is it. They don't. They don't even follow the world. And, and I did interviews also at the University of Washington, and there it's borne out as well. So that they don't actually. They aren't other than the women's national team, which we actually code as basically a form of national identification, rather than. Uh, you know, everybody follows the women's national team now in these major events. But uh, that they actually don't follow uh, the former, now of course defunct, women's uh, professional soccer league, and they don't follow the top game on the men's side. So they don't wake up and whatever and watch Manchester United Arsenal or whatever, unless they do so because of their father or boyfriend or whoever. But it's not part of their world as players. And that the two are really separate. And yet you make a point in that chapter uh, that participating in sports now for girls and for young women is something that, that helps them fit in socially. And yet talking about sports doesn't help them fit in socially. So, um, um, Emily, I guess I'll ask you, based both on your research and on your personal experience, what response do you get from other women when you try to talk about sports? There's always, from other women, there's always enthusiasm, and there's always, as opposed, talking to a guy, this, this, we talk about this idea that it seems as though the guy might be threatened, and, and the sportista in that situation feels as though she's being tested, and she's being challenged, and for whatever reason, you know, the guy in the situation is uneasy about it. That definitely doesn't necessarily happen with girls, but there is this idea that this idea amongst girls that if you're trying to be the cool girl who knows something about sports, I don't want to call it resentment, but um, there's definitely some sort of competitiveness in terms of the other girl feeling as though talking about sports is a way that the sportista in that situation is trying to call herself different from the typical girl. Mm -hmm. But But there isn't this between girls, this feeling of being threatened and this challenging and then I'd say generally if I try to talk to other girls about sports they're excited about it and they want to learn a lot of, I mean girls do want to know about sports it's just a huge commitment that you have to start when you're a little little kid let me just actually interject for example um, Emily uh, when you meet Jillian another sportista by the way mm-hmm. I know both of you really are sportistas and mm-hmm. really know your stuff how much of your time is spent talking about sports very little. <laughs> I rest my case. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, whereas when whereas when Andy and I got together last year with uh, with with 
fellow sports scholar Chris Young. It it went quickly from academic matters to uh, we had heated arguments about the NFL, and uh, we were talking about English English soccer. I think we threw in some rugby, and uh, yeah, it went <laughs> went all over. So even though we were, Bruce, st- I don't, I, I do not remember the academic thing. I, I think we <laughs> <laughs> we depart we departed from that fairly quickly. I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but Emily and Andy talking- spent an entire one of my favorite stories is that Andy spent an entire weekend with an out of town guest, another guy, and they went to. A bunch of Detroit sporting events, and the whole weekend he spent. Two, there were two guys, two, uh, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. And they all left, and Andy's wife said something to Andy about the man's girlfriend. I can't remember the exact I, story. I but think I know how this ends. The point is that Andy had no idea who who this girlfriend is. Like she, this this girlfriend, no, her name, her existence had not come up in three days. Even and you know. Andy's wife said, you sat with this man for hours and hours at sporting events. What? How did this not come up? And Andy, you know, the answer was easy for him. We were at, we were at a game. We were talking about the game. <laughs> so, Emily, you, you did talk about, uh, uh, about when you talk sports with men, and you did mention that uh, men feel, feel threatened and, and respond out of this sense of being threatened. Could you talk about that? You do present some anecdotes in the book of how – uh, men respond to you really in a negative way, and I would say, you know, for a lot of a lot of young men, they probably have this this fantasy that my ideal girlfriend will know sports, <laughs> but in reality, that's that's not the case. Correct? Brilliant point, Bruce. Exactly. Go ahead, Emily. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean that's exactly it. The idea. I mean, you can see this even in like TV shows. The girl that you know, the down to earth girl that everybody, you know, the ideal girlfriend who can really hang with the guys, but. They don't actually want her to hang with the guys. They want her to hang with the guys as the girl with the guys. So there's really this idea that it's entertaining at first if the girl can, you know, knows trivia as well. But when it gets to a point where she's maybe passing some of the other guys in terms of knowledge, it's not so not so fun anymore for those guys that are, you know, being challenged by hers. But that idea is definitely there that. It's so it's cool and it's you know every guy likes a girl that knows sports but but Emily I think can- there's a difference between knowing and liking sports I think the idea you know the girlfriend that everybody wants is one that will watch and will let him watch and you know he doesn't have to feel guilty for watching but that doesn't mean she needs to necessarily talk about the game or editorialize because that might be a little much exactly and could you maybe I mean would you also say that this is actually quite unique to sports I mean I would venture to say that. Um, you know, your male friends uh, and, and, and others, uh, other sportistas, boyfriends and male world are not particularly threatened by your knowing as much about contracts right. or about or about uh, torts or, or sociology. Or, sure. Is that correct? Absolutely. So that it is, in fact, um, sport has this kind of... Uh, uh, and, and as we argue in the book, the reason for this is, A, because it's so essential uh, to male identity, uh, whereas, of course, it's not for women. Women, so even when two super sportistas like Jillian and um, Emily get together, they're actually multilingual. They actually talk about, um, I don't know, law, this, that. They mentioned they might talk about the Mets or the Tigers, and uh, they both know the players, and that, you know, uh, Cabrera was a pathetic, whatever, on and on. But then they go on talk about many other things, whereas when I had these two visitors from abroad, but not only, it's very typical. In fact, we spend only talking about sports. And um, the, other, the other reason that I think men are threatened by this is what we then use in the book, this whole notion of distinction, that um, ultimately being a sports fan is something very easy. Uh, so it's a, it's a very easy club to enter. It's much harder than being a you know, great historian, let alone a great physicist. A- anybody in any club wants the club to be somehow special or somehow... Uh, guarded and and we you know that, but that's very normal. I mean, any any collective does this, and so the collective of sports fans, which is broad and in fact is, is identified as almost by definition male, 
even without achieving. It's like an ascribed uh, thing. You are, you, are, you are a man. Oh, so of course you know sports. Mm-hmm. Then clearly any newcomer is seen as an intruder and, and a contester, uh, you know, contests this uh, clubness, and hence they're unwelcome. And then women, and something, and this is a key point of the book, is that uh, this male-dominated realm of, of sports fans sets up entrance requirements for women. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, 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 Bruce, more than that, not only is it this, but, enter, but the entrance requirements are unclear and hence variable. So, oh, Emily, oh, you know um, the Tigers lineup now? What about the one in 1983? Um, so, it, 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 in other words, knowledge then very quickly becomes a form of test, of testing. And if you don't pass that, um, you know, you are, you are, you completely lose, lose legitimacy. I mean, I think that's, that's a, a key issue. Our experience, you know, as Sportistas, that the, even if you do pass the test, you know, those that are administering it, the guys that are in the club, they can just change the bar. So the test isn't over. Not you know all of a sudden now like Andy said you should name the roster from you know the year before you were born because that's what a real fan would do so it's a feeling of um, that that acceptance bar just being impossible to meet because it's always changing so once you pass one test there's always another one that any you know there's always any any sports fan can be stumped at any point but that was something that most of the most of the women that we talked to had similar experiences with this feeling of always being tested and the test never being over and when you pass one test they're just being another one that that you're going to fail and and therefore you're out of the club until you know Mm -hmm. but emily i do have to call you out because there is an anecdote in the book uh regarding a woman who claims to be a boston celtics fan and and you (laughs) are the one who takes up the role of the gatekeeper you're the one who says well she doesn't know any of the Celtics. She can't be a fan. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, it, but yeah. The, 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 well, by the way, I'm glad you picked that up because that was a, a, a really a, cl- a, a clutch moment in our research. Mm-hmm. I'm serious because Emily came out and she was sort of quite um, um, of the interview with this major sports uh, caster in the, in the in the Detroit uh, media area. And she was sort of a little um, put off or kind of even annoyed. And I said, what is it? Was it well, she isn't really a fan because and that's when we got into this whole debate about who's to de- decide who's a fan. And I think it was what was also telling Bruce is that it was Emily who felt this and not I. And, of course, it's very clear why, because, of course, Emily's sportista or Emily's sportsdom it, she feels always has to be defended, and she's insecure about it, especially mm-hmm. in the context of me. I mean, uh, or and not me, but me being a male, you know, male uh, sports crazy. And so I actually didn't feel that at all. But of course, I am secure in this. She wasn't, and so clearly by this woman claiming to be it, and in fact doing this professionally, uh, it you know cl- might sort of shed a sort of uh, a shallow light mm-hmm. on on this uh, profession on basically who is she you know it's 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 a form of uh, again uh, those that uh, feel insecure are 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 obviously very sensitive to this so what was really going on in the car is that emily felt sort of you know insecure about you know who is this woman i mean she is a sports journalist and she doesn't know stats or she didn't, you know, and she almost always went on about how much she loved this particular team and how she grew up with this love. But where is the knowledge? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, again, that was an experience that, I mean, not that specifically, but that, that other women that we talked to, other sportistas, definitely had similar, you know, if they're honest with themselves, they do it too. They do the exact thing, the thing that drives, you know, them crazy when it's a guy doing it, and that's, you know, this test and this, um, requirement that you have knowledge and not just an you know large amount of affection for a team. You have to, you know, you can't just like them. You have to care and you have to. We do the same thing. The girls that are trying to protect our spot or you know our candidacy for one day being in the club. It's in, like Andy said, we're threatened and it's important to us too to keep even our spot as being on the margins of you know in this sports fan world. That's important to us too to protect. So, so I think 
I'm definitely guilty of, of doing exactly what I complain about. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that, that has come up is, is uh, uh, talking about the knowledge of sports that, uh, that boys and, and men have as opposed to the knowledge of sports that even a, a sportista has. And so, uh, you know, I'll ask in your case, Emily, you know sports – but how is your knowledge of sports different from, from say, Andy's or, or a male sports fan, your former roommates whom you talk about in the book? Well, I think that we use a, a, an analogy to learning a language in that if you learn it early enough, um, you know, just like a language, if you learn early enough, you can speak more than one language and have no accent, right? So you can speak German and you'll sound like a German person in English and you'll you know sound like you're from the states and it's the same thing with sports we find that we believe that if you start young enough and it's just part it's a language that you're learning you know as you're learning english then you'll be able to speak without an accent and and things like knowing the history and that's really where a lot of the gender lines are drawn you know sportistas and other women things like like i don't know the history i don't know the old teams i don't know the 1989 you know tigers lineup because even though I was included by my cousins, it's just it wasn't, you know, my dad didn't have those conversations with me, and people didn't assume I wanted to talk about sports. And for guys, that does happen. So they end up, you know, maybe not even by choice, learning a lot about sports as they're growing up, which is a huge, which makes a huge difference down the road in terms of accumulation of knowledge. So basically, I think to follow up on what Emily uh, says is that we're arguing that Emily is um a, a, a an achieved sports person meaning that she is now uh, uh a, even am, among her her former roommates um she is sort of has a green card or mm-hmm. uh, is has has joined the community maybe but she's not actually seen as a native citizen mm-hmm. and uh that she will always speak it with an accent which at one point you actually forget about so in other words i'm sure that when they all watched, um, you know, again, uh, a team that they all love, or Michigan, or whatever. I'm sure that this is complete, a complete wash, and it doesn't. And to those that are insiders, and I'm sure that certainly to me, uh, I mean, I, there's no differentiation here. I'm not sure whether to, uh, let's say, were we to go to some party tonight, uh, which is full of sports people, but none of us know. I think her entry into that would be harder, mm-hmm. uh, or there would be sort of more of a um, kind of you know frowning or what you know just sort of it, it, it just wouldn't be quote unquote natural mm-hmm. and uh, this is uh, you know very different for men um, so to continue just, to continue the linguistic analogy and and thinking about you know is it is it the case that that Emily or another sportista speaks the language with with an accent and as her story says she's she's been speaking sports since she was a a girl playing with her cousins, or is it the case that uh, that men use a different grammatical structure for the language? That that for men, the knowledge of the starting lineup of the 1968 Detroit Tigers and all of the statistics and all the tables and and I speak this well of who the my NFL team drafted in the first round in 1983. That that for a male. This is the basis of the language, whereas for a a female, it's it's not, and so it's not a matter that she doesn't know the language. It's that the language is structured differently for a a sportista. Absolutely, and I would even go further um, that a, a man a man being so well versed. Let's again continue the linguistic analogy. You in the NFL are you know an advanced poet. You were. You really know the meta language, the I mean, all kinds of that. That you are actually on on the one hand actually more forgiving for women who I mean, you actually don't even expect women to know this. Okay, so so even the sportista, even the the, the probably even the journalist sportistas, the the, the Susie Colbers or the I don't know whoever who are actually doing this for a living, you probably don't expect it even. Um, whereas with a male sports fan, you do. Uh, and if and actually, I would I would say I would actually venture to say that if they don't, um, you're probably more forgiving because it's also oh, he doesn't really know the NFL, but he knows the NHL, or he is much more uh, well versed in the Bundesliga or something. Um, 
but uh, you know with 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 women it becomes this kind of immediate exclusion it's a, it's a form of of yes you're right i mean they, she can't speak that so by definition even if she's an advanced sports speaker uh her grammatic uh, or or basically her, her the, the linguistic structure the beauty and all this sort of really advanced stuff just doesn't exist and i don't expect it to mm-hmm. let me ask you about you have a line in the book in this section about uh the way men and women know sports and talk about sports uh you write women speak teams and players men speak sports so can i ask you to explain what you mean by that that line uh, well, we have a whole chapter devoted to what we call the typical female fan. I think that's an important chapter um, in a number of ways because it, it we, we understand that, like I said before, most women do not watch sports the same way men do. Most women do not know sports as well. Um, so this is part of our research into what most, you know, because women watching sports, there are many, many more than there you know, ever used to be and the number is growing, but we wanted to look closer at what that means, what are they watching, and what are they excited about. And everybody, you know, you, these stats, people love these stats that, you know, half of the women at a Michigan stadium you know, on a football Saturday or half of the people in the crowd are women, half of the Super Bowl audience are, are women. But we wanted to look more closely at what it actually, what those women are actually doing. So one of our findings was that for women, kind of like you said, like the, the language is a little bit different. It's about loving your team, um, getting excited for the event, um, and then when the event's over and the excitement surrounding the event is over, there isn't, uh, you know, rushing to the computer to read the blog, there isn't checking on other teams in the league to contextualize your win and to know what it means for your standings. It's it's just about loving the team, it's about cheering, and it's about big events. And one thing that throughout all the research that we found is that women love events like the olympics or even like the women's world cup or the men's world cup um and that's i mean that was one of the key key differences in a typical female sports fan um versus a typical male sports fan if you called yourself a sports fan you know a tigers fan and if you were a male you're and you're only watching you know one week in october if you're even lucky to get that you would have a hard time calling yourself a tigers fan without being labeled a bandwagon fan for example but for a woman the World Series is the perfect time to be a Tiger fan, and that's what you're a fan. That's what you're a fan of. You're a fan of the event, and you love the team, and you love the players. But it's not about watching every game, and it's not about reading before the game and after the game. And yeah, that was one of our one of our big findings. So, Andy, you explained in in our past interview how your love of sports, both in Europe and after you moved to the states, was connected to your relationship with with your father. And in the same way, my love of sports as a player and as a fan has always been wrapped up with with my relationship with my father. And interestingly, what you found in your research, both of you, is that this is also the beginning for many female sports fans, their their relationship with your fathers. Can you talk about what you found in terms of, of why sportistas and other female fans become fans? That's a tough one to say why. I think... In terms of the importance of dads that we talked about, is that that idea that somebody needs to be talking to you, you know, just like a language. Somebody needs to be speaking it in the house to you, sharing it with you from a very, very young age. And that's where, you know, that's that's the experience of many guys my age, and that's why they're so much uh, more advanced. I don't. I it's to say why a person a sportista becomes. A sportista is a very tough one, and I, but I do believe that it starts with being exposed to it, at, you know, by your dad, by your brothers, by your cousins. And I don't think it's, you know, if it, how could you ask, uh, you know, if I were to ask Andy why he became a sports fan? It doesn't necessarily feel like there was a choice to make. It just was kind of part of, you know, part of being involved in culture, part of, it's it's you know it's part of your part of your recreation part of your interest and I'm not sure that I'm not sure I have a good answer for why someone would decide to do so because I'm not sure it really is a decision necessarily. And what also what also makes it kind of random is that we try to of course as social scientists we try to kind of look at some patterns. Is it the older sister? Is it the 
younger? Is it the middle? Is it this? And it, it seems, again, the N is, of course, is way too small with 33. And, uh, but it's actually quite motley. In other words, uh, you know, um, Susan um, somehow starts watching uh, on Sunday afternoons uh, the NFL with her dad and uh, Karen, uh, uh, who is the older sister, doesn't. And in the other one, it's the other way around. And, and uh, one thing is, however, very clear that not only does it start with an early age, but that's when the proficiency starts and also the affect, so knowledge and affect. But also it's interesting that the dads are the only men in these sportistas world who are just totally proud of this. And mm-hmm. they, there, there is no entrance exam. Um, they are, you know, completely uh, proud and thrilled. And, you know, one of them actually came to my book part, book event here in, in Ann Arbor, and she bought 12 copies of our book uh, because his daughter is uh, one of the 33 interviewees. And you could just see the guy was seriously proud of this. Um, this was no, not, not, no boyfriend rivalry or uh, other male. This was a clear form of, you know, of, of, of just warmth, of, of knowing, of, you know, basically uh, being a successful young woman now working in New York. And she also is a huge New York Yankees and Buffalo Bills fan. Okay. Uh, and she knows all this and so on and so forth. All right, we're almost out of time, so let me ask you both after after all of the research you've done. Let's say that I'm starting a a sports television show or a radio show or a, a podcast, and I want to attract a female audience. Uh, let's say I hire you both as consultants. What would you recommend for someone in sports media who is wanting to to reach a female audience? How should they craft their their approach? <laughs> Backstories. I think that one of the big findings that, in terms of the typical female fan, uh, is that you know just like she's very excited about the event um, and sort of the cultural significance of the event outside of the actual game itself. I think women like the backstory. They like to know you know what you know the mom the moms in the stands are thinking and what you know the childhood of this athlete was like so it's much more about that it's much more about the context Absolutely. i mean um depending on what your your purpose is bruce if you have uh you know a huge donor and you don't need to, I mean, depending uh, if you just want to make um uh, make money very quickly and make be successful then exactly what um what emily just said and by the way we address this um with our whole discussion about espnw which caused the whole ruckus at the association for women in sports media convention in chicago when the book was sort of first and to this day some people love us at espn and some people hate us um, because we are in the book raising precisely this issue. Um, it's quite clear that at the moment, if you want to be successful, you do what Emily just said. You do background stories, you do in-depth uh, writing on, uh, on the players' uh, relationships, families, what they, how, you know, what they are all about. Um, uh, there's a very nice review of our book on something called The Rumpus, and the woman just starts out uh, um, by saying that we just finished watching the Olympics, and uh, um, my husband and I just constantly fought over the clicker, and uh, whenever I was uh, really interested in some background story, he just immediately you know, stopped it and uh, sped forward, and it said, that's fluff. I think that that's that's the that's the point, um, but um, I think to 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 link up with what Emily said, there are more and more and more women to whom the game and the numbers and what are also uh, relevant, and uh, who of course just didn't exist. I mean, you know, uh, this is a very new phenomenon. And so women are very recent entrants into this and still uh, amazingly uh, marginalized, even on the journalism side. I mean, we have some data on the book, and, you know, basically by now, and almost all uh, major media outlets, uh, you know, in the United States or the advanced industrial world, Britain, Northern Europe, it's pretty much 50-50. And, in fact, journalism schools have for a while been heavily much more female, UC Berkeley and so on. 
And when you look at sports department, it's still, uh, you know, I think the U.S. is leads here with 10%. And um, uh, I bet you that if you were to kind of uh, look again into the, what, what we call hegemonic sports cultures, namely the ones that are really followed, it might be less less still. Um, and certainly, you know, in Europe, it's even more so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the World Cup in 2006, uh, there was one female soccer journalist from the entire British contingent. So depending what your horizon is, I mean, if your horizon is a long one, then yes, I think uh, you can do both. Uh, you can sort of have hard, quote-unquote, male-coded sports coverage and uh, sort of, you know, what women are interested in, because you have, uh, um, you know, viewers for both. And at some point, I mean, the, the, see, that's why I'm coming back to ultimately uh, this being nurture, because there's nothing inherent. It's actually very easy stuff. Uh, I mean, if women can learn physics, they sure as heck can learn batting averages <laughs> and or, or, you know, history. This is not a, um, this is not a rocket science, as they say. Um, uh, and precisely because of that, that's our argument, precisely because it's so facile in some ways, uh, is it so preciously guarded as a male prerogative where we actually don't want to come back to what Emily said. You know, yes, we want the girlfriend to be conversant, to be with us, to watch on Sundays, but uh, she better be kind of silent when it comes to, uh, you know, real strategizing of why, you know, the Jets are lousy or they should use Tebow or not Tebow. I think just to add one more thing, uh, Andy brought up that conference at which we got into some trouble because the discussion was sort of like your question, Bruce. The discussion was about how to attract female readers to a sports section, for example. Um, so the discussion centered around, you know, and the things we mentioned in our book about the typical sports fan. You know, she wants a human interest piece. She wants a backstory. Um, but I think it's important to remember that the sportista, which we, you know, is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the female population, she actually doesn't need anything to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that was kind of our, our point with ESPNW is, ESPN is just fine for a male sports fan. Why should a female sports fan need a different realm if she, you know, if she is the same type of sports fan as a typical man? In other words, Emily, when she checks every night on various sports things, she does not go to ESPNW. She just goes to ESPN. Period. So I mean, that's just important to it, and it's it's hard to remember sometimes that the sportista. I mean, in a lot of ways, she she doesn't want to be. A female sports fan. She wants to be a sports fan. That's what she is. She's a sports fan. Um, but unfortunately for her, uh, she can't, you know, run from that gender difference. You've been listening to an interview with Andy Markovitz and Emily Albertson about their book, Sportista, Female Fandom in the United States, published in 2012 by Temple University Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from history to science fiction. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter or friend us on Facebook. You can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.